Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and the Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that I ran on with Angela Walker in 2020. So Biden gave a State of the Union address, and I'm going to give a response. Um, It was... uh, Pretty well, I think politically it was good for him because he, he he had a rhetoric that was oriented to working class people. And I think he was effective with that. In contrast to the recent Democratic presidential uh, presidents and presidential candidates who oriented toward the educated middle class. Um, and, you know, that... Uh, that broadens the base of appeal for the Democratic Party. In fact, I think in that respect, it was the best speech Biden has ever made. Uh, 27.6 million people viewed it. They tend to be older, but I think receptive to that. And you wonder where that was during the midterms, because, you know, the Democrats only came within 6,675 votes spread across five very close uh, House district races from keeping the majority of the House. And I think uh, if that theme had been uh, what the Democrats were leading with, they'd probably still have the House majority. So that was the overall picture he gave. And so uh, it's not so much neoliberalism, you know, public austerity, deregulation, privatization, but uh, the old liberalism, the New Deal liberalism, where the government is activist. Um, but it's still a corporate liberalism where uh, the corporations are still in charge. So it's really not a solution to our problems, but I think politically it was effective. But he started right off by calling for bipartisanship again with the Republican Party that tried to overthrow his election. Is busy now pushing laws in the states they control to suppress, suppress the vote and set it up so state legislatures they control, not the vote, can decide Who's elected? And, you know, the way you fight fascism is not to cooperate with it and accommodate it. It's to fight it and defeat it. Uh, But that theme was running through his speech as well. So he started off and and went most of the speech talking about the economy. And as I said, it was more the old-fashioned liberalism than the neoliberalism in rhetoric. And there were some good points in there, you know, incentives for domestic manufacturing rather than offshoring. That's popular. We should have uh, more, uh, our supply chains more rooted in our own economy here. Uh, He touted infrastructure, which is popular and we need it. Although the amounts we have, and he didn't get into amounts, he just said we need to finish the job, is uh, way below what's needed, uh, according to the, forget the name of the association, but of engineers who who, uh, grade our infrastructure every year. And it's also a lot in the wrong directions. I mean, we're still emphasizing roads rather than rails, for example, electrified rails. So, um, but anyway, the infrastructure was popular. Um, I think the best point in the speech was he talked about protecting Social Security and Medicare. Um, And then, you know, the Republicans, and he suggested that some of the Republicans want to cut those programs. And they heckled him. And he said, well, I'm not saying all of you. I'm saying some of you. And 
They heckled him and I said, oh, so he said, so, oh, we agree. No cuts to Social Security and Medicare. And they were silent. The Republicans were silent. And so he basically took that issue off the table for the Republicans when they talk about uh, deficit reduction. So he kind of did some political jiu-jitsu there uh, and was nimble on his feet in a way he normally not is. And uh, that was pretty good. But then he did go to talk about deficit reduction. Um, which is the traditional fiscal conservative position of the neoliberal Democrats. And although he didn't spell it out this way, what it means is public austerity, not progressive tax reforms or military spending cuts, which is where the real money is so that we can fund our social and environmental programs fully uh, and still you know, not keep digging ourselves deeper uh, deficits uh, and a greater debt. Um, he did come out for the PRO Act, that's Protect Our Right to Organize Act. It's a good labor law reform bill. Uh, he did say we need to restore the child tax credit, which was introduced during the uh, COVID pandemic, and that was uh, very effective at reducing child poverty. I think it cut it by about half. Um, he talked about affordable child care and elder care. But again, uh, didn't say how, but the way the Democrats do it is public subsidized for private delivery rather than doing it through public agencies at cost. So, um, again, it's that uh, corporate liberalism, not the kind of uh, democratic socialism we would advocate. And he said we need uh, more inspector generals or they brought the general inspector generals back to fight corporate fraud, which uh, and he was very good at talking about how. You know, corporations are ripping us off with hidden fees. And, uh, you know, that was good. Um, but on the whole, it's still, you know, through the corporate sector, doesn't deal with the fundamental problems. And one thing that would have been popular that he left out, which we need, is raising the minimum wage, which is still $7.25 an hour, um, you know, the federal minimum wage. And then he turned to education and he talked about universal preschool, which is good. He does have a bill that's being developed. Um, again, is that going to be as part of a public school system, or is it going to be uh, that plus uh, subsidizing private uh, schools to deliver that? Uh, that's not yet clear. He said public school teachers need a raise, and the Democrats are preparing legislation uh, to raise the minimum wage for teachers to 60000 a year, uh, which is a good idea. Um, he didn't put a number on, on what the raise should be, but um, that civility has yet to be introduced, but it's probably on the way. Uh, he, he said we need to reduce student debt, but didn't call for the full cancellation of that debt like we do. And again, he talked about free community college, one of his campaign promises, but not about tuition uh, free education at all public colleges. So it's a liberalism that is... Uh, tepid, doesn't go all the way, um, not doing things like they do in Europe, like uh, public colleges are tuition free. And then he talked about health care and uh, basically said we're beyond COVID. Of course, we're not. 3,500 people died last week from COVID and the virus keeps evolving because of high transmission around the world where vaccinations and public health precautions are minimal. Um, 
Now the federal emergency measures that were instituted with the COVID pandemic expire on May 11th. That's what the Biden administration is doing. And one consequence of that is an estimated 5 million to 14 million people are going to be kicked off Medicaid. Once people are on Medicaid, they couldn't be taken off during the emergency. And that wide range for the estimate of how many will lose coverage uh, is wide because each state is going to determine for itself who they're going to kick off. So it depends on what the states do. And meanwhile, you know, COVID vaccine costs, we've talked about this, are going to quadruple for both Pfizer and Moderna uh, from the $26 the government paid for this year to $130 per dose. And people that are not covered are out of luck. They're going to have to pay the higher price or probably be uh, disincentivized from even getting the vaccination. And the co-pays of private insurance are going to be higher. Um, he talked about a cancer moonshot, reducing the death rate from cancer by 50% in 25 years, which is great. Uh, but there's no specific program. I mean, the White House is appealing to private and public agencies to uh, give their ideas on how to do that. But right now it's more PR than a real program, at least to this point. Uh, another good thing he said is uh, he supported Medicare negotiating drug prices with big pharma. There's a little bit of that in legislation that passed that uh, caps the cost of a limited number of drugs, including insulin. And he wants to go further. And that's good. But the problem is what he didn't talk about. He said nothing about Medicare Advantage, which his director for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, Liz Fowler, the woman who was a former insurance executive who wrote the Affordable Care Act, which we know is Obamacare, which is a system of public subsidies for private health insurance. Uh, a major part of it is. Um, and she's, her goal, her stated goal is to get everybody on Medicare and Medicaid into private programs, Medicare Advantage and other uh, privately managed programs in Medicaid, um, which is a terrible idea because then, you know, they, they get you on a Medicare Advantage and then they can deny you services or make you fight for services that ought to be covered. Uh, there was no commitment to universal health care, which even in the neoliberal period of uh, the Democratic Party, they, they gave lip service to. And we're in a situation now where 8% of Americans have no coverage. That's 27 million people. And of course, what we advocate is not just national health insurance, Medicare for all, but a national health service, community controlled, democratic, and covering all aspects of the health care system, not just the insurance side. And uh, so, you know, the healthcare situation is going to get worse with the repeal of the uh, COVID emergency and nothing was offered to expand healthcare coverage. Um, then he turned to climate and didn't say a whole lot. He did uh, tout the Inflation Reduction Act, which does have some investments in uh, clean renewable energy, but also a lot of permitting for increased oil and gas development. That's why I call the bill Build Back Badly. Um, and Biden is still at this point has approved more drilling on public lands at a faster pace than Trump did. Um, 
He talked about increasing the export of fossil fuels. At one point, he said, we we're going to need oil at least for another decade, which actually is true in the transition. We're going to still be using oil and got some heckling from the Republicans. And he said, oh, and beyond, uh, beyond a decade. Um, and really what, what the climate action, which everybody, you know, it is the first climate action the federal government has passed, but it's still spending billions to prop up the oil and gas industry with scams like carbon capture. So, you know, there's really not climate solutions uh, coming. And then he turned to tax reform and said, as he said a couple of times during the, the speech, I'm a capitalist is what he said. And called for fairer taxes and touted uh, the corporate minimum tax of 15%, which is better than what we had. Um, but he, and then he said, we're not going to increase taxes at all on people earning less than $400,000 a year. That's the top 1.8% of American families. So, you know, it's appealing to the affluent professional middle class and not having a progressive tax reform program that is broadly based and not just strictly on the super rich. Um, he did say uh, he's for quadrupling the tax on stock buybacks, and that's probably a good reform, but that was the extent of it. You know, no wealth tax, no financial transactions tax, uh, not a more progressive personal income tax, more progressive corporate taxes, not repealing the Trump tax cuts. You know, he talks about deficit reduction. That's a huge reason why the deficit has ballooned uh, since Trump got that bill passed. Uh, you know, it was just nothing. And uh, there was a lot more that could be done. And then he turned to police reform. And he did call for more social services and uh, economic improvement in, in impoverished high crime communities uh, without being specific, uh, without any particular program. He touted uh, an executive order he passed implementing the provisions of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, but it's only for federal officers. So, you know, it bans chokeholds, bans no-knock warrants, uh, and a number of other things. But the problem is most police brutality and killings are done by local police. And he didn't even mention or call on Congress to pass the full George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which does ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants. It would end qualified immunity. That's really important because right now uh, the cops are exempt from civil lawsuits for the damages they cause. That's what qualified immunity means. It would require that uh, the police wear body cameras. There would be a national police misconduct registry, which would help. And another thing that the bill calls for, you can't rehire cops that are fired for uh, police misconduct and, and uh, brutality. And it would enhance pattern and practice investigations of police departments, a pattern and practice of uh, discriminatory and abusive policing. So that's all good. It did pass the House in the last session. Of course, the Senate didn't pass it because they got the damn filibuster and the Republicans can veto it. But he didn't even call on Congress to move on that. He just said, I did it for the federal officers and uh, left it at that. He did have Tyree Nichols' parents in the gallery, uh, but he made no mention of the other high-profile police killing of Mamopais Tarans, which we've talked about. 
who was protesting the militarized policing uh, that Cop City, their building in Atlanta, would represent. And of course, Biden has been calling for putting more federal money into such militarized local policing. Um, he didn't, that I remember, tout the money he had gave to the police. Um, and then we got to realize that even with the George Floyd and Policing Act, uh, you know, banning chokeholds doesn't mean much if it's not enforced. Remember Eric Garner, who was choked to death on Staten Island uh, by a police officer where chokeholds had been banned since I think the late 1990s, you know, I think 93. So it was like 20 years and Eric Garner was uh, killed by a police chokehold. Uh, so you can have rules, but if they're not enforced, it doesn't matter. Uh, he did call for restricting no-knock warrants, but didn't call for supporting uh, Representative Ilhan Omar's Amir Lockingly and Deadly No-Knock Warrants Act. I mean, there's legislation in the Congress that he didn't point to. But for us, I think we've got to keep highlighting this. What's missing in all this when it comes to police reform is community control of the police. If they don't work for us, but work for the power structure that uses the police to enforce the lines of race and class segregation in our cities, which the real estate industry, which is the real money behind municipal politics in the center of municipal power structures. Uh, if we don't challenge that, then the police are gonna keep doing what they're doing and we cannot hold them accountable. Um, so, you know, Biden, when he did talk about the need for crime prevention through social and economic programs, and he mentioned health, housing, education, and employment, but his economic program doesn't provide for it. And so I think we need to keep advocating for an economic bill of rights, the right to a job, an income above poverty, affordable housing, quality, comprehensive health care, child care, uh, free public education from uh child care through uh, public colleges and vocational schools after high school and a secure retirement. Uh, we need real programs, not just talk about these things. And we all we got from Biden was some rhetoric. He talked briefly about gun violence and called for a ban on assault weapons. Uh, mentioned that we did have one that he helped pass back in the 90s for 10 years. Uh, and that was really uh, after Reagan was uh, shot, and there was a lot of sentiment for that. Um, and, you know, I, 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 as a former Marine, uh, I don't want to see weapons like I had, the M16, on the streets. They're designed to kill a lot of people fast. They're not for self-defense or hunting. They don't belong on the streets. So that was good, um, although whether it can get through the the Congress with the majority of Republicans in the House is doubtful. Um, he touched on immigration and emphasized uh, equipping the officers at the border to secure it. That was the first thing he said. Uh, and the Republicans heckled him a little bit, like he maybe he wasn't really doing it. Uh, he said we need to protect the dreamers. Uh, but that's about it. Um, you know, he said nothing about stopping deportations without due process, which his administration is doing at the same rate as the Trump administration. Uh, nothing about giving due process to asylum seekers. 
In fact, they're getting deported right back to the deadly situations from which they're seeking asylum. And of course, the kind of policy that I've talked about is we need a real open borders policy like they have in the European Union and many other regions around the world, including in Latin America. Uh, so people can move freely back and forth across borders for work, recreation, shopping, residence. Um, you know, there are no border checks when you cross these borders and where they have this, this uh, free migration policy. And, you know, the people say, well, the drug smugglers and the sex traffickers, you know, how are we going to catch them? They're not checking in at border crossings. They're going around them anyway. So, you know, it's other law enforcement practices that have to deal with those problems uh, rather than putting that on uh, policing borders, which in our case, you know, our border with Mexico is really like uh, apartheid. Uh, the borders are used to enforce uh, economic and political inequalities across borders, just like South Africa used the Bantu stands or Israel's using the West Bank for migrant labor. And, you know, we let them in when we need them, but we send them back when we don't. And that is uh, an exploitative uh, policy that uh, really doesn't help us or them uh, on the other side of the border. It's, it's, it's counter economic development. And of course, freedom of movement is a basic human right and we should not be violating it. So not much on immigration where the Biden administration doesn't have a good record. Uh, he did briefly talk about protecting abortion rights. He said he would veto a you know, national abortion ban if the Republicans sent it to him. That's not going to happen. It won't get through the Senate. But he made no mention of the bill that would codify the abortion rights in Roe v. Wade. It's called the Women's Health Protection Act. It passed the House in 2021. But Biden made no commitment to that bill. He didn't mention it. He did call for passing the Equality Act. Uh, which is uh, would include LGBTQ people, uh, as he put it, to ensure LGBTQ Americans, especially transgender young people, can live with safety and dignity. And, you know, the House has passed that, didn't get through the Senate because of the filibuster. Um, you know, you can't criticize Biden on that policy, um, although you can on not fighting the filibuster, which prevented that from coming into law when the Democrats had both houses. And then he got briefly to foreign and military policy. I'm going to talk a lot more than he did about it. Um, he touted uh, building a coalition to support Ukraine, uh, which I think he's basically done a good job. We're providing arms. We're not providing our own troops in direct combat with the Russians uh, to support the Ukrainians' right to self-determination. I think that's a good policy. Uh, and then he turned right away to talk about competing with China. And he said they're threatening our sovereignty, which I think is way overblown. Uh, talked about modernizing the military to deter aggression and talked about <clears throat> uh, trying to deal with the suicide epidemic among veterans and supporting the VA in that. And that, that, that's okay in itself. But where are the real peace policies? You would think facing a divided Congress where passing domestic legislation is going to be nearly impossible in the next two years. Foreign and military policy would be the area where Biden would emphasize the things he could do. And it's where progressive changes need to be made. Um, 
And he certainly didn't speak out against the imperialist bullying and pervasive militarism that characterizes U.S. and foreign, uh, US foreign and military policy. Um, you know, treating China as a competitor rather than a potential partner to help resolve, you know, international life and death issues like the climate, climate crisis and the new nuclear arms race is not protecting our security. You know, I'm all for speaking out against China's violation of human and democratic rights, but those criticisms should not be a uh, condition on having discussions on the other issues that are of mutual concern. And instead of treating China like an inevitable adversary, we should treat it like a potential partner and see, uh, you know, how far they are willing to go in dealing with climate and the arms race. Of course, we're going to have to change our policies to go anywhere. Um, you know, climate, we have cooperated with China in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to block mandatory uh, limits on emissions and to uh, delay the uh, reparations for damage and loss. They did agree in principle at the last COP, but didn't uh, set up a way to have it financed. That was kicked down the road. And for many of these international climate summits, U.S. and China have worked together to block real climate action. Um, I'm just skipping over. I got a lot of notes here. And um, so, you know, the going back to the Ukraine policy, um, as I said, I think he's been pretty good. Uh, he's supporting... Ukraine's just right for self-determination with military and economic aid, not engaging the troops directly. He stated that our U.S. policy is not regime change in Russia, uh, just that Russia should withdraw from Ukraine's territories. I think that's a good policy. But what is missing in the background? You know, this is a national liberation struggle by Ukraine for its self-determination. But there's also in the background inter-imperialist rivalry. Russia's, you know, invaded. It's obviously imperialist in Ukraine, but the U.S. and NATO and the West have uh, pushed neoliberal economic policies on Ukraine, which is an economic imperialism, making it easier to be exploited by the West. And now if Russia's justification for invading Ukraine is sincere, that it was security concerns, you know, the U.S. should much more aggressively, they've done a little bit, uh, go to Russia and say, okay, let's negotiate uh, mutually acceptable security arrangements for Russia, for across Europe, for Russia and uh, the European countries, and use that as a basis for disarmament, nuclear and conventional. And if Russia's real motivation is, you know, great Russian chauvinism, rebuilding the Russian empire by recolonizing nations that were once in the Soviet in czarist empires, then this diplomatic initiative will more further expose Russia's imperialist motivations. Um, but we're not pushing that hard. Both sides have blame in this deteriorating relationship. It was the U.S. that unilaterally withdraw, withdrew from the Anti-Ballistic Missiles Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, and the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, and Russia, you know, the U.S. said, well, Russia's violating the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Okay, we'll use the treaty to get them back within it, rather than just saying, okay, we abandon it, and we're going to have an arms race. 
And Russia, you know, they were the ones that pulled out of the uh, Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Treaty back in 2007. Um, and right at the moment, they're refusing to negotiate on START, the Strategic Arms Treaty, which needs to be updated. Um, so, you know, the U.S. should take, you know, very public initiatives challenging Russia to get down and talk about these things. And if we could establish those mutually acceptable security arrangements, uh, that would create an environment which a settlement in Ukraine that was just and enduring would be much more likely. Um, and, you know, if we have the security arrangements, then it becomes much easier for progressive conventional nuclear disarmament. Um, so I may get back to the disarmament thing, but Biden said nothing about, you know, what's going on in Israel and Palestine. You know, the violent uh, expansion of the Israeli settlements in the West Bank and all the Arabs that have been killed, uh, which is they're fighting back, uh, not in an organized way, but uh, it's just creating a more volatile and violent situation. And the U.S. is still giving basically unconditional military and diplomatic support for Israel's apartheid policies of occupation and annexation of Palestinian lands. Uh, of course, we advocate BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions, starting as the uh, Palestinian National BDS Committee asks us to with cutting off military aid to Israel until the human and democratic rights of Palestinians are recognized and, and fulfilled. And then there's the war in Yemen, uh, which Biden said nothing about. The U.S. is still sending military aid and sending and selling arms to the Saudis and Emiratis who are using them for their war in Yemen. In fact, the aid we've given to them since 2015 is on a scale of what we've uh, committed to give to Ukraine this year in the next few years. $50 billion in military aid overfund. It's more like 55 since 2015 to those two aggressors in Yemen and $127 billion in arms sales are in the pipeline. Uh, again, you know, Biden said nothing about the U.S. global military empire and all the things it's doing. And, you know, a progressive president, uh, you know, would start to roll those things back. He said nothing in support of the women-led pro-democracy movement in Iran, which is a major global story. Uh, and instead, uh, allowed, at least permitted or didn't protest, uh, Israeli drone strikes against Iranian military production facilities while this is, these protests are going on. I'm sure the U.S. was notified ahead of time, but they haven't protested. Um, and meanwhile, we're getting reports that you know, the U.S., through its uh, various covert programs, is meddling in the opposition movement in Iran to promote U.S.-friendly leaders. And that's not for the U.S. to do. It's up to the Iranians to decide, uh, you know, who their leaders are and what their program is. Uh, you know, the U.S. should express support for the pro-democracy movement, condemn the brutal uh, crackdown by the Iranian regime, including uh, executing people for, you know, protesting. And uh, but keep the hell out of, of their movement. Um, let the Iranians decide their future. Uh, which brings us to Syria, where Iran has a lot of has extensive military intervention. The war there is in its 12th year. 
and negotiations at this point are on serious political future are being conducted by other foreign interveners, of which there are many, Iran, Russia, and Turkey, in particular without the U.S., uh, without opposition forces, including the left-wing Kurdish forces, now governing Rojava, is, which is what they call northeastern Syria. Uh, that is not who needs to be at the table to get a real political solution. Um, and despite the apparent conflict between Russia and U.S. over Syria, they in fact coordinate in fighting ISIS, uh, where the U.S. took the lead, and Al-Qaeda affiliates, where Russia is fighting them in Idlib province. And But they cooperate. The U.S. couldn't have taken out ISIS and Al-Qaeda leaders in Idlib, where the Russians control the skies, without Russian cooperation that allowed us to go in there and uh, you know, do those missions. Um, and Israel would not have been able to make hundreds of airstrikes over the last couple of years against Iranian military assets in Syria without the cooperation of the Russians and the Americans who control the Western and Eastern skies respectively. Um, now Iran and Russia see themselves as competitors for making money in the Syrian reconstruction after the war. So it's a very complicated situation, um, but the U.S. should be pushing hard diplomatically for a political solution that includes the opposition forces. Um, and instead, they're just letting that process go on without them. They dis diplomatically disengaged and basically just, I think it's about 500 troops they've got uh, deployed with the Kurdish forces to fight ISIS, uh, which is... Not what we not all we should be doing. We should be there uh, promoting a diplomatic solution. And then in Africa, uh, the U.S. continues to pursue a militarized approach in the so-called war on terror in Africa, with AFRICOM establishing military bases in cooperation with most African states. And they're in competition with the Russians, the Wagner Group. Their uh, mercenaries are now working with the uh, dictators of Sudan, Mali, Central African Republic, and probably Burkina Faso. And in return for providing security for those dictators, they're getting mining concessions. And that's, you know, economic imperialism right there. Um, and the Chinese are there as well with their investments. Now, the insurgencies in many of these African countries, and some are Islamic fundamentalists, but others are just rural peoples, um, they exist because the autocratic and corrupt governments in those countries are not solving social problems. And so the U.S. should be much more focused on economic development and incentivizing anti-corruption reforms than militarizing uh, their intervention by uh, just using the military to fight uh, Islamic insurgents. So there's a lot that can be done on Africa policy, not mentioned. Africa is always never thought of or discussed when it comes to the State of the Union. Um, in terms of global economic uh, foreign policy, uh, Biden did tout the, uh, or really didn't tout, the global corporate minimum tax that many countries agreed to back in October. Um, because, But he didn't get Congress to approve it when the Democrats had both, Congress of House, both houses of Congress. So uh, that's probably why he didn't mention it. And then there's another problem, huge problem, of tax havens, where the world's super rich are hiding their money in offshore tax havens. Uh, the Democratic 
platform in 2020, you know, called for eliminating that. But Biden is not pushing the multilateral action that's needed to shut them down. Uh, and it's something certainly a green administration would pursue aggressively because, you know, that money should be reinvested in our uh, various nations development rather than sitting offshore uh, avoiding taxes. Another issue is the authorization to use military force since 2001. That allows the president basically to go to war anywhere if you can say it's uh, against the war on terror. It's against terrorists. Uh, it's a big uh, loophole which enables the president to get around the War Powers Act, which restates what the Constitution says is that only Congress can declare wars. Um, so, you know, a big issue is restoring the constitutional balance where Congress has the war powers and the president uh, would execute them if we declare war. But we've been fighting war after war after war. Last declared war was World War II. Um, it's a real problem. And of course, Biden didn't address that. And then, you know, what are the real security threats that we face? It's climate change. It's the new nuclear arms race. And it's infectious diseases. I mean, COVID is the one now, but, you know, the scientists keep warning us that there are more likely uh, diseases that are going to come into uh, spread among humans from uh, animals that we come into contact and disrupt their habitats. Um, and so, you know, this is something that's on the horizon beyond COVID. Instead, um, the U.S. failed to uh, support the waiver on patents for COVID vaccines that South Africa and India pushed at the World Trade Organization. Uh, Biden did say he was for that, but then uh, we know from reporting that behind the scenes at those meetings, the U.S. was supporting the other countries with big pharma companies like Germany and the U.K. and the Netherlands in uh, not lifting those vaccine patents. Uh, which is, you know, bad uh, economic policy in terms of promoting equality, but also just bad public health policy. And as I mentioned in the COP27, uh, as well as earlier climate summits, no mandated emission cuts, uh, no funding for loss and damage, which they reluctantly uh, recognize. Uh, so, you know, on the climate front, we're not really addressing that security threat. And then we've got this new nuclear arms race, which the U.S. really kicked off under Obama with this multi-trillion dollar, multi-decade, really, uh, nuclear modern, modernization of our nuclear weapons, including hypersonic missiles, which are six times, I think, six times faster than the speed of sound. I mean, they're so fast that no longer can, uh, it undermines deterrence because they're so fast, uh, you can't launch a retaliatory strike, which is the determined when you spot a first strike, because that first strike is so fast, it could wipe out your response. So that puts the nukes on a hair trigger. And the slightest provocation or fear that they're going to wipe out your nukes first might push you to launch your nukes first. And that's where we're headed with these hypersonic missiles. Um, now, there are many, and we've talked about this, talked about it during the campaign, there are disarmament initiatives that the U.S. could take without undermining its security or its deterrent at all. We could declare no first use, uh, which is China's policy. 
uh, although they're rethinking it in this new nuclear arms race, it's India's policy. It's not Russia's policy, but uh, it's not the U.S. policy. But that's something we could do. Put that out there. Eliminate the ICBMs, International Continental, Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, uh, which are really just targets. Um, that's what a first strike would try to wipe out. It makes us a target. And with these hypersonic missiles coming on, uh, those are already on hair trigger alert. Uh, it just makes the hair trigger more sensitive. Um, we could get rid of them. We still got the submarine and uh, air launch missiles. We don't need those intercontinental ballistic missiles. But taking that disarmament initiative could open up uh, the space for diplomatic initiatives to uh, begin talking about, as I mentioned earlier, well, I'm not sure I did, but uh, with the uh, withdrawal of the Russians from the conventional arms for armed forces in Europe treaty, uh, we should push for pan-European mutual security arrangements among the U.S. and NATO countries and Russia. Uh, doing these peace initiatives like No First Use could uh, begin to create an environment where we could really talk about that. We need to re -get, uh, recommit and force the Russians to come back to the table on START, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, which is uh, goes out of effect in 2026, the last version of which they agreed to under the Obama administration um, was just renewed. And it's obsolete in a lot of respects, even though it's renewed for five years. It needs to be updated. Uh, and those negotiations need to restart. The U.S. should say we were wrong to get out of the ABM, INF, and Open Skies treaties and say we're ready to talk about reestablishing those treaties. Those are bilateral with the Russians. Um, and then as we make these disarmament initiatives and these peace policies, we should also push all the nuclear powers to come to the table so we can all get into the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which over 100 countries have now approved and uh, you know, is really what we need to do. That's the way to get to nuclear disarmament. But, you know, Biden talked about none of this stuff. It was just a little bit about Ukraine and China, and then he moved on. And as I said at the top, you would think, given that he's going to have a difficult time getting domestic programs through this uh, Republican House, that foreign policy would be where he could stand out and, you know, make some changes. But apparently he's happy with, you know, U.S. imperialism as it is. And that's a problem. So finally, he wrapped up. And man, I've been going a while, haven't I? Uh, talking about democracy and concluded with pro-democracy rhetoric, but very little substance. Of course, he condemned the January 6th coup attempt, but then immediately restated that he seeks bipartisanship on these democracy questions with the party that tried to carry out the coup. Uh, he said at that point, the state of our union is strong when it's obvious that it's divided and we got a fascistic far right that has a lot of power, disproportionate to its real support. And he has no program for dealing with that. And as I said before, you don't fight fascism by accommodating and cooperating with it. You defeat it. Um, so he called, and this is just a ritual, for protecting voting rights. But of course, he failed to do that when the Democrats had both houses and they had to lift the filibuster. And he did little. He whined about it a couple of times, but did, you know, really didn't fight to get it lifted for voting rights. Um, and then, of course, he said nothing about what we talk about a lot. 
and that is changing the electoral rules that produce an exclusive, exclusionary, two-capitalist party system. Um, so the Greens need to lead the pro-democracy movement, not only for voting rights in honest elections, but for electrical, electoral rules that will yield an inclusive multi-party democracy. Ranked choice voting to end the spoiler problem and the wasted vote problem. And uh, ranked choice voting in multi-member districts to create proportional representation of legislative bodies, uh, which will end partisan and racial gerrymandering, which everybody talks about in these independent commissions really don't change that much. You know, California, for example, they got 52 House districts. Only five of them were competitive after an independent commission uh, drew the lines. Um, so most of our districts are one-party districts because of our single-member district winner-take-all system. And it enforces this two-capitalist party system that includes the green and socialist left from the reputation, representation we would have if people could vote for us without worrying about the spoiler problem. Um, so no mention of proportional representation. Uh, how about abolish the electoral college and replace it with a ranked choice national popular vote? It's actually popular among the public, but the Democrats and Biden aren't talking about it. Uh, he said nothing about the problem of private funding of our elections by the super rich and giant corporations and replacing it with a full public campaign finance program. You know, it's ironic, and maybe Biden didn't even notice because it's a leftover from the 90s when it was more popular. But he had on his website campaign platform, first thing under uh, campaign finance, he said he would support a constitutional amendment to ban private funding of campaign elections. Um, and he didn't say much during the campaign and uh, not a word since he was elected. He ended up supporting this matching fund system, which was part of the uh, Democrats' electoral reform bill, H.R. 1, which never passed anyway. So, you know, the Greens really need to take the lead on voting rights, honest elections, and these pro-democracy reforms that will create an, inclus an inclusive multi-party democracy. So to wrap up here, and sorry it took so long, I'm not leaving a lot of time for questions and comments, but uh, I figured I'd give my response to Biden. He took an hour and 15 minutes, so I've been a little more succinct. Um, so Biden changed his rhetorical posture for the Democrats from neoliberalism to the old New Deal liberalism. But the substantive policy, while it's socially liberal on questions of race, gender, and sexual orientation, economically, it's really uh, some of the neoliberalism and a lot of just corporate liberalism, where public programs are run through the corporate sector or programs are run through the corporate sector rather than the public sector. Um, so, you know, economic programs like for healthcare and climate action, uh, it's contracts, subsidies, and tax breaks for big business rather than public agencies that can run these programs at cost for less cost to us, but universal coverage. Um, and this corporate liberalism is not going to end the growing inequality, militarism, and environmental destruction that flow from the competition-driven, built-in system of exploitation and blind growth that is capitalism. So the differences with the Republicans on that is they're just more stingy on 
public subsidies for private business to implement uh, government programs. Wealthy special interest private money still dominates campaign funding and lobbying, and the Republicans agree with that. They just want less regulation of the financing and lobbying. lobbying. U.S. militarism and imperialism is unchallenged and uh, by the Democrats, and the Republicans agree with that, although their far right wing wants to ally with Russia because they like its authoritarian one, you know, strongman rule and social conservatism, but they want to be more aggressive toward China's state-directed capitalism, which they call communism, and so do the Chinese capitalists. Um, so I think it's important that we have to recognize there are differences between the corporate liberalism of the Democrats and the fascistic corporate authoritarianism of the Republicans. You know, you could say the Democrats are less of evil between the two. That's probably just an objective fact from our point of view, but that doesn't mean we should support it because that is still a road to increasing inequality wars and climate cases. We need to advance our own program on these life and death issues. Uh, it needs to be an eco-social program for real political and economic democracy so we have the democratic power to carry through, implement these solutions to the climate inequality and militarism problems, despite the resistance of the corporate power structure. So if you're still with me, uh, I, I welcome your questions and comments. I see there are 88 messages in the chat. And uh, okay, Chris Blankenhorn, the tone only ever comes into centering the working class when the Democrats don't control both houses. Where was this when the, they had control of both houses and the White House? I'm trying to think when the last time the working class was centered by the Democratic leadership. I don't it was, certainly wasn't under Clinton and Obama. Uh, look at candidates like Dukakis and Mondale, uh, Kerry. I mean, they were all a, a neoliberal rhetoric. I think the the transition was was uh, Carter, um, and he really, you know, I mean, it, he was more. I think that's where the, the Democrats started reorienting to uh, the educated middle class as opposed to the blue collar working class. Um, and, you know, where was this when they had control of both houses in the White House? Yeah, well, as I tried to describe, the programs that they're implementing really are working class programs. They are what we used to call corporate liberalism. You know, it's they, they want to provide some programs to deal with some of these programs, these problems, but they running through big business with, you know, privatized delivery of services through contracts, incentivizing it through corp uh, tax breaks and, and subsidies. Um, so I don't see, I, this is really the first time a Democratic leader since, God, you really have to go back maybe to Humphrey. I mean, McGovern was also kind of transitional. He was not uh, good at, at articulating uh, what the working class uh you know, aspire to. His his policy platform was more in that direction. He was a New Deal Democrat. But even rhetorically, back then the big issue was the Vietnam War and civil rights. And that's where the uh, cultural divides within the working class, uh, you know, became a bigger problem. Um, so anyway, I think, I think the, the 
middle class orientation of the Democrats goes back uh, a long way. <clears throat> Leftists of Louisiana, do you like Hakeem? I think you're referring to Hakeem Jeffries. Hell no. I mean, he goes out of his way to attack, you know, the left, progressive Democrats. Uh, he has a pact that finance challengers to progressive Democrats. He's a former corporate lawyer. Uh, he won his district against a, a left-leaning Democrat named Charles Barron, uh, overwhelmed Barron with corporate money. Uh, he's just what the corporations ordered to lead the Democratic Party. He's, he's no change from Pelosi. Andrew Hager, I'm sorry to go off topic suddenly, but have you heard the news about the disastrous train wreck that happened this week? Uh, two of them, Ohio earlier in the week, and then I understand uh, this morning uh, in Pennsylvania, there was another one. And that, I think, just speaks to the need to get the rail system out of the hands of these greedy corporations who are cutting back on staffing and safety uh, working people overtime, uh, making it hard to get sick leave days off. Um, it's just setting up a situation where these accidents are going to happen. We have them here in New York, uh, CSX line running across upstate New York. They're frequent accidents. We haven't had uh, accidents as bad as happened in Ohio and what I understand happened in Pennsylvania this morning. But uh, we need to bring the whole railroad system under public control a public ownership and democratic control so that we can have a first rate uh, freight and passenger rail system, uh, transition it to uh, electrification powered by renewable energy um, and just upgrade it. I mean, we have one of the, among the, you know, industrially rich industrial countries, we have probably the worst rail system of any of them. Um, and that's because and these industries are enormously uh, profitable. I can't remember the number, but their profit rate was something like 50% last year. Um, and they're spending those profits on stock buybacks rather than upgrading their equipment and paying their workers. So, you know, it's time to socialize the rail industry, bring it under democratic control, and through that uh, public control, modernize and ecologize, I guess you could say, our uh, rail transport systems. Violated content boutique. How is it true that heat pump systems can be unreliable in cold, snowy regions? I don't think that's true. It's certainly not true. Everybody I know around here that has a heat pump system, no problems. Um, the only problem that you can have is if the power goes out because of a, you know, blizzard or something like that, or ice storm. And then, you know, they, they're powered by electricity. Um, so that's really the only uh, problem I can think of. And, you know, once, once you've covered the cost of installing them, uh, it, it saves you a lot of money because you don't have to keep buying uh, gas or heating uh, oil. So, um, no, the heat pumps are, are where we need to go. Emil Sachs, for any other Oregon residents hanging around, there will be an online accessible hearing about 
statewide public health care happening Monday, February 13th at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Um, if you want to put a, if there is a link to that in the chat, we'll put it on the screen for people so they can participate. But thanks for that. Amy L. Sachs, don't know if I can post a link, but searching Oregon Senate Committee on Healthcare should get you where you need to go. Okay, so it's a public hearing. Frankie Lee, or Amy says, oh, I don't know if it's available on YouTube, but it's a Zoom meeting open to the public. And Oregon residents can submit a statement up to 48 hours before the meeting's over. So there's still time. Okay, great. So, yeah, make your voices heard. And, uh, you know, we're not going to get uh, Medicare for all through this house for sure. And probably this Democratic Party because they're committed to the privatized system of Obamacare. So we got to, I think, do it at the state level, show it works well, and then we can bring it back to the national level with good evidence to show it's it covers everybody and it costs less. Yeah, I see a comment here from Don Osborne. Have you visited UK trains? Yeah, there you go. They're a joke due to being privatized. Yeah, that's the legacy of Thatcher and neoliberalism. Um, same thing's happening to their National Health Service. I mean, it's one thing to get it, but if the right comes back in and, uh, you know, undermines your public uh, services and, and assets, you got a problem. So uh, you got to be vigilant. You know, it's politics. Democracy is a continuous game. It's not something you win and then you can go home from. <clears throat> Violet at Content Boutique. My HVAC fellow said, this area is too cold for heat pumps. Then I saw an article that said, current HVAC techs just don't want to do it. Uh, I think that article is probably right. They're familiar with uh, setting up the uh, heating and uh, air conditioning systems uh, that are the old, old school ones uh, that run off of furnaces. And they're just not familiar with the heat pumps. And uh, some of them don't even know how to link up the heat pumps to the uh, the vents. So um, I think that article is probably right. And, you know, but there are other, I, I suspect there are other uh, uh, vendors that, you know, are learning that and willing to provide the service. So you just got to find out who they are. And these Retrograde uh, HVAC techs are just going to have to catch up if they want to stay in business. I see an interesting comment. I'm going a little longer if, if man behind the screen can, because I took so long to present. And I'm sure there's some questions about what I said or comments on it. I see Frankie Lee says we'll never get... Medicare for all under capitalism, and Britain no longer has free NHS. Yeah, they're they're privatizing. They're adding fees 
uh, co-pays and things like that in Britain. Um, but I would say, you know, capitalism can accommodate public agencies that provide public services universally because we do have many countries with national health insurance programs. Um, so uh, capitalism can live with that. And in fact, a lot of capitalists would prefer that because, uh, you know, particularly, you know, smaller companies, uh, because it's a lot of work to, you know, get an insurance plan for your employees. I did this as part of a, co a food co-op we started. And, you know, they gave us this big binder of all these different policies we could offer our employees. And we could make heads or tails of it. We finally had to ask the people from the health insurance company, what well, you pick, what do you think makes sense? And then we looked at that and kind of did make sense. It was expensive. Um, and in the end, our employees decided they couldn't afford it. Um, but that, if you just take that off the table, healthcare is covered. And as you know, if you're running a business, you don't have to worry about it. Same thing for the unions. It takes it off the bargaining table. Your people are covered by a good program, a public program. And then you can focus on bargaining for better wages and working conditions and pensions and other uh, benefits. Um, so, I, you know, what I'm arguing is that some of the capitalists would prefer to have the medical system just publicly uh, run. Um, so I think we this is something we don't have to have a socialist transformation to get universal health care. Um, so I think we could we should keep fighting, you know, for those reforms like they are up in Oregon. And we are here in New York. Vicki Corden, Democrats are too weak to fight the those fascist Republicans. It is scary. Those fascists are being financed by millionaires. Yeah, they're, uh, the Democrats have their billionaires, but the Republicans have theirs as well. And it is scary because you're in a two-party system that's structured that way by biased electoral laws that exclude other all you know, other political uh, persuasions. And so it, it's unchallenged. And the Democrats' instinct is, you know, Biden's. You know, we, we work across the aisle, even if these people would cut our throats in an alley if they could. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a scary situation. And that's why I disagree with those who say uh, to stop the Republicans, we got to settle for the Democrats, even though we don't really like them. What was that slogan some of them were saying in open letters to tell me not to run in 2020? Um, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, beat Trump, then fight Biden, something like that. But, uh, you know, how about putting forward our own program and building support for that? And the more support we get, the more the Democrats are going to have to lean our way to compete with the people that are voting for us, to compete for the people voting for us. You know, I've said many times, you know, on this podcast and other elsewhere, how when we got 5% of the vote for governor in 2014 against Andrew Cuomo, who wanted to run up the vote, get ready to run for president, get more than his father, Mario Cuomo, ever got, more than he got when he was first elected in 2010, and he got less because we got 5%. And he had to see what we were talking about in order to compete for our voters. And out of that, we got a ban on fracking. We got, uh, a, we got a higher minimum wage. And we got paid family leave. 
not a minimum wage and the paid family leave and even the fracking was not as far as we would have gone, but we moved the debate and we moved policy, even with just 5% of the vote leveraging those changes. So, you know, if we don't speak up for what we want, nobody else is, and we end up disappearing. Uh, we get, what was my phrase? We get lost in the sauce. You know, if you vote for a Biden and you want Medicare for all, nobody's going to know that because he's against Medicare for all. Lomboy Wilson, Medicare sucks. Fully socialized medicine is the answer. $10,000 a night for a hospital bed, no sin. Yeah, that's the problem. You know, you're, you're hitting it with that $10,000 a night. The hospitals are private and they tend to be monopolies. And so they basically can charge whatever they can uh, get the insurance companies to pay or the Medicare system to pay. Yeah, and Medicare doesn't cover all medically necessary services. Um, so it's very limited. You know, things like eye care and uh, hearing aids, you know, they don't cover that. They don't cover drugs. Um, so, yeah, Medicare is very limited. And, yep, National Health Service that socializes not just the insurance payments, but the delivery system and brings the doctors and nurses uh, they become public employees under the direction of elected community health boards uh, so that the system is accountable to the people. Um, that's what we need. And, you know, I think it's one of the things the Greens can lead on and uh, move the debate for universal health care from national health insurance, which they call Medicare for all, to a national health service. Emil Sachs. I also noticed locally that our Democratic representative Blumenauer sent a mass email in support of reparations for uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color. Um, no credit to the Green Party, of course, and no actual plan cited. Sigh. Yeah, um, I think the reparations question, it's Black History Month. Maybe you thought this was a good time to say that. Uh, we have moved the needle on that debate, although we're far from getting any real program. Uh, I mean, the, the one piece of legislation that deals with that, which goes back to something John Conyers, I believe, introduced in the 80s, calls for a commission to study how to do reparations. Uh, and that's important because uh, the people who would receive the reparations need to speak for themselves as to what they need. You know, is it just a check to everybody, or is it uh, collective institutions that build the black community, uh, which is what the original reparations demands that were uh, announced at the church down there in uh, New York City, where King gave a speech. Um, I'm blanking on the name, but it's a famous church, big, big church. And uh, that was James Foreman, who had come out of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And he was demanding money for uh, black uh, media uh, companies and uh, educational institutions and a land bank in the South where black people had lost so much farmland and collective institutions like that. So what would be the mix of individual and collective reparations? All that needs to be studied so you can come up with a, a decent reparations plan. 
that's the bill on on the table. And Blumenauer didn't mention it. Of course, Biden didn't mention it. Uh, at this point, it's still a good idea. But the fact that Blumenauer had to mention it, felt he had to mention it in a mass email, uh, I think shows we've moved the needle a little bit on that discussion. The email, comments on the earthquake in Turkey, Syria. What role would an eco-socialist administration play in such disasters? Well, we would do, I mean, the, the U.S., I think, has been pretty good. They lifted any sanctions that would interfere with the delivery of uh, aid to uh, the, the parts of Syria affected. Uh, the problem is the Syrian government wants everything to run through them. Uh, the Russians support that. So aid, you know, coming through Turkey, that's the one corridor for humanitarian aid to Idlib, which is the most seriously affected province in Syria. Uh, the two problems there. One is the Russians really don't, they want all the aid to come through the Syrian government. And then the other thing is that road has been severely damaged. So there's a lot of problems. Um, the U.S.'s military assets there uh, with equipment and uh, things that could help people on the ground, they've offered it to Turkey. And I'm not sure if they've offered it directly to Syria, but uh, they certainly lifted the sanctions so that aid can come into that part of Syria. Um, so those are the kind of things we would do, we should do. Death toll is over 25,000 now. It's a complete disaster. Um, and, you know, one thing I'll comment on is a lot of those buildings in Turkey were built by developers who didn't uh, build the code, uh, you know, which requires um, some earthquake-resistant structures. And it's resulted in a lot of deaths. I, I believe, I think I heard today that or yesterday that a developer in Turkey has been arrested for that. So um, I think in terms of rebuilding, things got to be built so they're earthquake resistant. I mean, those building collapses is what killed most people. Okay, I think the, the man behind the screen is ready to go. Um, so we got about almost half hour of questions and comments. Um, I hope, you know, the, the length I took about Biden's State of the Union address, um, you know, helped you understand, you know, what the administration is doing and where it falls short. I'm going to answer one more question I see in the chat from Jesse Motes. Howie, are you going to run for the Green Party nomination? Uh, for president again in 2024? And the answer to that is, I don't know. Um, it's a huge undertaking. Uh, you got to pull together a campaign team. You got to raise the money to support them. Uh, it's a huge job to get on the ballot. Uh, the Green Party's not well organized to do that. It goes state by state. Um, I don't want to run a half-assed campaign. Um, there are other, you know, I'm evaluating, can I make a better contribution by writing and communicating and organizing on other issues locally rather than running for president. On the other hand, uh, you know, there, there are good reasons to run. I don't see anybody else in the Green Party ready to run a serious campaign. Um, 
we got a debate in the Green Party on on whether it's, we're going to be uh, against all imperialisms or just against U.S. imperialism and uh, not support the Ukrainian struggle for national liberation. I think that's a big issue. That would be a, a reason for me, you know, getting into the race. But at this point, you know, it's it's more the organizational things that, uh, you know, I haven't worked through yet. Um, I'm doing some other work on Ukraine solidarity and some things I got to take care of, you know, for my own, you know, personal issues and, and life. So um, it's going to be a while before I, you know, do, do a serious evaluation. Um, but I would say, you know, if I did run, it would be the same themes plus one more. You know, the themes last time were uh, uh, eco-socialist Green New Deal to deal with the climate crisis and the inequality crisis through an economic bill of rights, and then peace policies, peace initiatives to deal with the new nuclear arms race and, you know, all the threats to peace. So um, in addition to that, I would say inclusive democracy. I'd have a fourth theme, and that would focus on ranked choice voting, proportional representation, replacing the electoral college with the ranked choice national popular vote for president. I think we got to lead on that because the Republicans are attacking our uh, democratic uh, rules and institutions, and the, uh, the Republicans are doing that, and the Democrats are feckless in fighting back. And, you know, we got to take the initiative on that. So if it's not me, I hope whoever runs will run on those issues. Um, so that's the best I can tell you at this point. Stay tuned. So just to wrap up, um, let me uh, urge people, and the website was down. It'll come back up soon. Uh, the Green Socialist Organizing Project, which sponsors this video and uh, is trying to advance green socialist politics. Uh, we're now set up. We need members uh, to support you know, our activities, including just the uh, internet and, and online and what do you call it? Technical, digital uh, support so we can communicate. Um, and there should be a link to that coming up in the chat. And then uh, Ukraine Solidarity Network, uh, link to that should come in. I urge people to look at the statement and consider becoming part of that network. And then there's an event that that network's putting on uh, for Saturday, February 25th, the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, called Russian Out, Russia Out. Solidarity with the Ukrainian resistance. And uh, it will have two Ukrainian socialists, one who came up in the Donbass region, one who's from Western Ukraine, a Russian socialist, anti-war activist who just fled into exile. Uh, his name's Kirill Medvedev. And then, uh, well, the socialists from Ukraine are uh, Yulia uh, Yurchenko, who I had on this podcast, and uh, Vladislav Sturbatsov, or something, I, I, his last name, I'm not pronouncing quite right, but he's the guy from the Donbass. Um, and also a, a Syrian pro-democracy activist. And we'll be talking about international solidarity and, uh, you know, how to really put it in practice and why. So that event is coming up, and I want to give you early notice on that. Here it is in the chat. So uh, I appreciate people. Oh, and then here's another one. 
We're going to have a discussion on Ukraine with uh, Matt Ho and Margaret Kimberly and myself, uh, who all have different perspectives. And uh, we're going to have a constructive debate, not uh, the kind of name calling we get online, which isn't which isn't advancing the anybody's knowledge really. So uh, that's coming up on Thursday, February 23rd. So there's a lot coming up and I appreciate people being here today and I'll be back here next week. So have a good week.